Chapter 10 of The Last Egyptian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. The Last Egyptian by L. Frank Baum. Chapter 10. Lord Cromer's Reception. It was but natural that Lord Cromer, with his intense loyalty to home government, should endeavor to show every honor to the latest recipients of Her Majesty's favor. He gave a splendid dinner to Lord Rowan and his family, which was followed by a reception attended by nearly every important personage then in Cairo. At the dinner, Gerald Winston was introduced to Annette Conanser, and had the good fortune to be selected to escort her to the table. She won the big Englishman with the first glance from her clear, innocent eyes, and he was delighted to find that she conversed easily and with intelligence upon the themes that most interested him. Winston knew something of the reputation of Lord Rowan at home, and remembered not only his intrigue with the Egyptian princess in his youth, but the gossip of many more recent escapades that were distinctly unsavory. He had also heard whispers concerning his son, the Viscount, that served to cast more or less discredit upon a name already sadly tarnished, but no one could look into Annette's candid eyes without being convinced that she was innocent of the sins of her father's. Winston exonerated her at once of any possible contamination from such sources, rejoicing exultantly that the English maiden was unconscious of the smirch of her environments. However, as he listened to the girl's bright chatter, an incongruous thought struck him and made him frown involuntarily. He remembered that she was a cousin, on the left hand to be sure, but no less an unrecognized second cousin, to that dirty Egyptian whom he had lately discovered under the palms of Fedra and who had since, by an astonishing evolution, become Prince Kara. Lord Rowan was grandfather to them both. It was not Anna's fault. Perhaps she would never know of the illicit relationship, but his own knowledge of the fact rendered him uneasy for her sake, and he began to wish she had never been allowed to set foot in Egypt. But here she was, and apparently very happy and contented by his side. "'Perhaps I am wrong in my estimate of Cleopatra,' she was saying. But the inscriptions on the temple at Dendera seem to prove her to have been religious and high-minded to a degree. Perhaps it is Shakespeare's romance of Antony and Cleopatra that has poisoned our minds as to the character of a noble woman. "'Have you been to Dendera?' he asked. "'And can you read the inscriptions?' "'I have penetrated into Egypt no farther than Cairo, Mr. Winston,' she responded with a laugh. "'Therefore my acquaintance with the temples is confined to what I have read.' But at my school there was a teacher, passionately fond of Egyptology, and around her she gathered a group of girls whom she inspired with a similar love for the subject. We have read everything we could procure that might assist in our studies. And don't laugh, sir. I can even write hieroglyphics a bit myself. That is quite simple, said he, smiling. But can you decipher and translate the sign language? No, so many individual signs mean so many different things, and it's so impossible to decide whether the inscription begins to read right to left, or in the middle, or up and down. That may well puzzle more experienced heads than yours, Miss Consoner, said he. Indeed, I know of but one man living who reads the hieroglyphics unerringly. And who is that? she asked, with eager interest. He bit his lip, blaming himself for the thoughtless slip of his tongue. Nothing should induce him to mention Kara by name to this girl. "'A native whom I recently met,' he answered evasively. "'But tell me, are you not going to make the Nile trip?' "'I hope so, when my grandfather has time to take me. But he says his new duties will require all his present attention, and unfortunately they are connected with the new works in the Delta rather than with Upper Egypt.' She glanced across at Lord Rowan, who was conversing lightly with two high dignitaries, and his eyes followed hers. "'But won't you tell me something of your own experiences in the Nile country?' she asked. 
I am told you are a very great discoverer, and have lately unearthed a number of priceless ancient papyri. They are interesting, returned Winston modestly, but not so extraordinary as to deserve your comment. Indeed, Miss Consinor, although I have been many years in Egypt, engaged in quiet explorations, I cannot claim to have added much to the vast treasures that have been accumulated. But his grace the Khedive has made you obey, she persisted. He laughed frankly and without affectation. The Khedive has this cheerful way of rewarding those who will spend their money to make his ancient domain famous, he replied. Bays are as plentiful in Egypt as are counts in France. But you have made some discoveries, I'm sure. The wonderful papyri, for instance. Where did you find them? I bought them, Miss Consinor, with good English money. She appeared disappointed, but brightened a moment later. At least it was you who discovered and excavated the birth house at Kamambos. I have read your article concerning it in the Saturday Review. Then you know all about it, said he. But see, nearly opposite us is the great Maspero himself, the man who has done more for Egypt than all the rest of us combined. Does he not look the savant? Let me tell you something of his most important work. Here was a subject he could talk on fluently and with fervor, and she listened as attentively as he could desire. After dinner they repaired to the great hall of the palace to participate in the reception. Lord Cromer was soon gracefully greeting his guests and presenting them to Lord Rowan, Viscount Consinor, and the Honourable Aneth Consinor. Gerald Winston, standing at a distance from the group, gave an involuntary shiver as he saw Prince Kara brought forward and presented. Lord Rowan greeted the Egyptian with the same cordiality he bestowed uniformly upon his host's other guests. Why should he not? Only Winston, silently observant in the background, knew their relationship, except Kara. Yes, Kara knew, for he had said so that day beneath the palms of Fadah. But now his demeanor was grave and courteous, and his countenance composed and inscrutable. Anna smiled upon the handsome native as he passed slowly on to give place to others. Kara, who now affected European dress, wore the conventional evening costume, but he was distinguished by the massive and curious chain that hung from his neck, as well as by a unique gem that he wore upon a finger of his left hand. It had no real color, yet it attracted every eye as surely as if it possessed a subtile magnetism that was irresistible. No one saw it in the same aspect, for one declared it blue, another gray, a third brown, and the next one green, but all agreed that it had a strange, fascinating gleam, and declared that it radiated tiny tongues of flame. It was the stone Kara had picked from the burial case at at Kara. Later in the evening, the Egyptian found opportunity for a short conversation with Aneth, who was plainly attracted by this distinguished-appearing native. He found her curious concerning the chain of the kings, and proudly explained it to her, reading some of the inscriptions upon the links. Sometime, said he, it will give me great pleasure to go over all the links with you, for in them is condensed the history of the great kings of the early dynasties. There is not another such record in existence. I can well believe it, replied the girl. You must honor me with a call, Prince Kara, for I am an ardent Egyptologist, although a very ignorant one. I thank you, said Kara, bowing low. I shall esteem it a privilege to enlighten you so far as I am able. My country has a wonderful history, and much of it is not yet printed in books. Shortly after this he left the reception, although many of the ladies would have been delighted to lionize him. He had become known in the capital as the last of the descendants of the ancient kings of Egypt, and while more than one was skeptical of the truth of this statement, its corroboration by the natives who knew of his lineage, the wide advertisement given his claims by Tadros the dragoman, and the enormous wealth the prince was reputed to possess, 
all contributed to render him a most interesting figure in Cairoene society. It is certain that had he cared to remain at Lord Cromer's reception, he would have met with no lack of attention, but his object in attending was now accomplished, and he left the assemblage and found his carriage awaiting him in the driveway. Home, said he, in Coptic, and his dragoman nodded cheerfully and sprang upon the box. The journey was made in moody silence. Meantime, Winston rejoined Aneth and found her a seat in a quiet corner where they could converse undisturbed. He had watched Kara uneasily while the Egyptian was addressing the English girl, and now inwardly resolved to counteract any favorable impression the native prince might have made upon her unsophisticated mind. Why he should interest himself so strangely in this young woman he could not have explained. Many a fair maid had smiled upon Gerald Winston without causing his heart to beat one jot the faster. Nay, they had at times even practiced their arts to win him, for the bluff, good-looking young Englishman was wealthy enough to be regarded a good catch. But the society of fashionable ladies was sure to weary him in time, and here in Egypt he met only butterflies from England and America, or the coarse-featured, stolid native women, who had no power to interest any European of intelligence. But Aneth Consinor seemed different from all the others, not because she was fresh and sweet and girlish, for he had seen nice girls before. Not that she was beautiful, because many women possessed that enviable gift. Not that she was gracious and intelligent, with a fascinating charm of manner, although that counts for much in winning men's hearts. Perhaps, after all, it was her sincerity, and the lights that lie in the clear depths of her wonderful eyes that formed her chief attraction. The eyes, he remembered, had impressed him at first, and they were destined to retain their power over him to the last. And the strangest thing of all, it occurred to him, as he sat pleasantly chatting with her, was the fact that she was Lord Rowan's granddaughter, and the child of Lord Consinor. A remark that Kara had once made flashed across his mind. The father, giving so little to his progeny, can scarce contaminate it, whatever he may chance to be. Perhaps this was more logical than he had hitherto cared to believe. Aneth mentioned Prince Kara presently, and asked whether he knew him. Yes, he answered. It was I who discovered him. Kara is one of my new finds. "'And where was he discovered?' she asked, amused at his tone. "'In a mud village on the Nile bank, clothed in rags and coated with dirt. "'But he was very intelligent, for he had been educated by a clever relative "'who had once lived in the world, and, in some way, "'he and his people had access to an ancient hoarded treasure, "'so that the man was rich without knowing how to utilize his wealth. "'I purchased his treasure, or a part of it at least, and brought him to Cairo. "'He was observant and quick to adapt himself to his new surroundings.' He sold more treasure, I have since learned, and visited Paris and London. In six months the dirty Nile-dweller has become a man of the world, and society accepted him because he is rich and talented. How curious, she exclaimed. And is he, indeed, a descendant of the ancient kings? So I believe, on his mother's side, for the Egyptians trace their descent only from their mothers. Yet they are so inconsistent that it is of their fathers that they boast. The Egyptian women have usually been poor creatures, listless and unintelligent. In this they differ from the women of almost every other semi-tropical country. They must have been different in the olden times, said the girl gravely, for it is not likely that the first real civilization of the world sprung from a stupid race. And think for how many centuries these poor creatures have been enslaved and trodden into the dust. I am inclined to think that the contempt with which the Saracens regarded women is responsible for their present condition in Egypt. Have you found none of them clever or womanly, as we understand the latter term? He thought of Hatacha. There are doubtless a few exceptions even in these days, he answered. 
and you are right about ancient women having had their place in Egyptian history. Besides poor Cleopatra, whom you so bravely defended at dinner, there was Queen Hatasu, you know, and Nitocris, Hatshepet, and others who rendered themselves immortal. Have you visited our museum yet? Only for a glance around, but that glance was enough to fill me with awe and wonder. I mean to devote many days to the study of its treasures. Let me go with you, he begged. It would please me to watch your eager enjoyment of the things I know so well. And I can help you a little. You are very good indeed, said the girl, delighted at the suggestion. We will go tomorrow afternoon if you can spare the time. May I call for you? he asked. If you please, I will be ready at one o'clock, for I must take full advantage of my opportunity. So he went home filled with elation at the promise of tomorrow, and never before had Gerald Winston given a thought to a woman after leaving her presence. Tonight he dreamed, and the dream was of Aneth. End of chapter 10 Recording by Susanna Mason, 